Hello and welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 89th episode, our returning guest is Sarah Kensinger. You first heard Sarah Kensinger on episodes 70 and 80 of the podcast. Here's her biography. I am a writer. I am best known for my critical take on the prestige economy, my reporting on St. Louis, my coverage of the 2016 election, and my academic research on authoritarian states in Central Asia. My best-selling essay collection, The View from Flyover Country, was published as an ebook in 2015. An updated version of the book is being released by Macmillan Publishers in April 2018 with new material on the Trump administration, how America got here, and where we're going. Pre-order your copy today. I am currently an op-ed columnist for The Globe and Mail, where I focus on U.S. politics. I am also the U.S. correspondent for Dutch news outlet De Correspondent. Previously, I was an op-ed columnist for Al Jazeera English, where I wrote about exploitation, particularly in higher education, the diminishing opportunities of America's youth, and gentrification. I have also covered internet privacy, political repression, and how the media shape public perception. My April 2013 article, The Wrong Kind of Caucasian, is the most popular AJE op-ed of all time. I have also written for Politico, Quartz, Fast Company, The Chronicle of Higher Education, The Guardian, Foreign Policy, The Diplomat, Marie Claire, The Atlantic, Medium, Radio Free Europe, Politico Europe, The Chicago Tribune, The Baffler, NBC News, Blue Nation Review, Alive Magazine, Ethnography Matters, The Common Reader, The New York Daily News, La Stampa, Slate, World Policy Journal, The Brooklyn Quarterly, Center for International Governance Innovation, Teen Vogue, City AM, Pinio Juris, Hardcover, World Politics Review, and The New York Times. In August 2013, Foreign Policy named me one of the 100 people you should be following on Twitter to make sense of global events. In October 2013, St. Louis Magazine profiled me as one of 15 inspirational people under 35 in St. Louis. In September 2014, the Riverfront Times named me the best online journalist in St. Louis. In June 2017, the St. Louis Magazine named me the best journalist in St. Louis. In addition to working as a journalist, I am a researcher and a consultant. I have a Ph.D. in anthropology from Washington University in St. Louis and an M.A. in Central Eurasian Studies from Indiana University. Most of my work focuses on the authoritarian states of the former Soviet Union and how the Internet affects political mobilization, self-expression, and trust. My research has been published in American Ethnologist, Problems of Post-Communism, Central Asian Survey, Democratizatia, Nationalist Papers, Social Analysis, and the Journal of Communication. I am a program associate for the Central Asia Program at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University and a research associate at the Russian, East European, and Eurasian Center at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I am frequently interviewed by the media and have been a guest on NPR, MSNBC, Al Jazeera, CBC News, BBC World Service, and other broadcast outlets, and am a recurring guest on the MSNBC show AM Joy. I have given talks all over the world as an invited speaker at academic conferences and forums on public policy, politics, education, and technology. I occasionally serve as an expert witness in asylum cases involving applicants from Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. Two final programming notes before we begin today's episode. Sarah and I recorded this conversation on Wednesday evening. On Thursday, Ryan Grimm of The Intercept reported that Sam Cedar will be offered his MSNBC contributor job back, and he plans to accept. Also on Thursday, Democratic Minnesota Senator Al Franken announced he would resign in the coming weeks. And now, on to the show. Hello? Sarah? Hey. Hey, how's it going? Okay, how are you? Oh, I'm surviving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's but, really the best case scenario these days. <laughs> 
Yeah, so uh, thanks so much for being back on. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Um, so how was your road trip through my neck of the woods here in Indiana and throughout the Midwest I saw you took here? Oh, yeah. We just did a little trip to Kentucky to go see me with Gaze. It was good. Um, we stopped in Indiana. We stopped in Santa Claus and then at uh, Lincoln City on the way back. So saw a little bit of that and then headed home. Yeah. Uh, and, then, you know, as you noted, uh, it kind of coincided with uh, Trump's attack on the uh, sacred lands there in Bears Ear and Grand Staircase uh, to basically just open it up to private development. So it was kind of... A- yeah, no, it was very upsetting. And I mean, and it was also completely expected. I mean, I have an article that I wrote for The Guardian last January about their plans, you know, to kill the national park system and their attacks on it. And so since then, um, you know, I've been trying to take my kids to, you know, to national parks and to historic landmarks and sites um, because I'm pretty sure they're going to systemically destroy them. I don't know how long that's going to take. Um, I think if there's resources, it'll go quicker, uh, you know, but it's it's frightening. It's just something, you know, as a parent, um, I want my kids to see, you know, and have a sense of our history and of our environment and to have memories, um, you know, if these things are gone, so... Yeah, and it's just like extra upsetting with uh, specifically the Bears Ear and the Grand Staircase because that has implications for the Native American community. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, there's that extra little insult on top of injury that that he always just adds. Whether by- yeah, and he's he's hostile to them in a way that's you mm-hmm. know that was prefaced um, you know the week beforehand with his attack on the Navajo coast right. walkers um, when they were supposed to be rewarded. I mean, he really seems to despise Native Americans and resent them. And so, I think that there's more than just greed at play. I think that he has this sort of fantasy of um, you know humiliating them, which he does with every um, you know ethnic minority. Uh, but he you know he certainly seems to have it in for them. Sure does, and you know I'm sure it was not a coincidence that. That all took place in front of the, uh, uh, you know, hallowed portrait of Andrew T- Trail of Tears Jackson. Uh, yeah. You know, so, I mean, that was not an accident uh, at all. No, sometimes I wonder if that's a president that Trump's team introduced him to, because mm-hmm. I really don't think that Trump has a sense of presidential <laughs> history. But, you know, I think they may, so the others on the campaign right. um, and in the administration do, and I think they might have selected Jackson and said, see, you know, you're not that unusual. You have kind of a, a forebearer. Here's some things that this guy did. And then Trump can, you know, see himself as like a maverick and as somebody is in this great sort of tradition of upheaval and, you know, whatever he needs to do to kind of pander to that base. Um, you know, I, I just have doubts that Trump really knew who Andrew Jackson was. <laughs> this guy just like a guy on a piece of money. Like, I'm sorry. I just, I can't like picture him curling up with a biography or something or knowing about, you know, <laughs> the, like the trail of Sears or Jackson or anything. I mean, he was in St. Charles um, in Missouri, like just last week, and he didn't know who Lewis and Clark were. You know, it's like where Lewis and Clark set off from their journey. So I'm kind of, you know, I don't think he knows no. like the figures of American history. So you know, someone got him that portrait, and he's like looking at the hair, and he's like, oh, that he slaughtered people. He was a racist. Works for me, you know. <laughs> that, that sounds good. So yeah. Anyway, for sure. Yeah, but um, with the Native Americans, uh, I think one thing that you did that was great as you brought up the old video of him. Where was he testifying in front of? It was some gaming commission or it something? It was, I think, the Mohegan Sun Casino in Connecticut, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is on a Native American territory there. And, I, you know, it opened, I think, in the 80s and 90s. And Trump, some sort of issue with taxes, you know, obviously he didn't want to pay them um, because he never wants to pay them, and then, you know, was uh, insulting them, and, you know, that video has been around for a while. I remember tweeting it out uh, during the campaign as an example of, you know, many things, of racism, of his mm-hmm. refusal to abide by the law, of his refusal to, to pay taxes, and this sort of idea that he was above the law and above taxes, and, you know, media people would just be like, oh, whatever, that's old, you know, he changed. And I'm like, how? How do you change? He's exactly like this. Like, what, what's wrong with you? And so, you know, now that's just sort of confirmed. Um, he really doesn't change that much. You know, his core personality uh, has remained the same the entire time he's been a public figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, certain alliances and interests have changed a little bit, but, you know, he, he's still Trump, and, and that's not a good thing. Yeah, I love the defense of him that they always come back with where they're like, 
well, he was a Democrat when he said that. It's like, it doesn't matter. That's, he he literally nothing. Yeah. He's just a kleptocrat and a nihilist <laughs> and, you know, just a moral void. Oh, and, yeah. You know, he was not, politics was just a tool that he could use to, you know, rig things and make money for himself. And if he's working in New York City, you know, especially in the 80s and 90s, it's better to be a Democrat. You know, it's better to, to make alliances within that crowd than to be a Republican. Mm-hmm. If he had been born in the South, he probably would have been a Republican, you know, it doesn't matter. And so he just, uh, he'll, he'll switch back and forth. And I don't think any of this really means very much to him. Any of these party alliances, you know, in, in that sense, it's sort of true. When people said, oh, this is an atypical candidate that goes past the two party system, it's like, well, yeah, but like not in the way you want. <laughs> so it's more like it's completely irrelevant to his financial schemes. Like that's how he, he surpasses it. Um, mm-hmm. not out of, uh, ideological commitment to a more, you know, moral and representative party or something. Mm-hmm. Well, I've always thought of him, uh, and I can't remember who I heard say this first, but he's like a third-party candidate that, like, figured out that he has to pick one of the two parties, and, you know, Republicans were apparently gullible enough to go for it. Uh, yeah. Know, so. Well, I think, you yeah. know, they they didn't want him. I mean, that was clear at the very start, um, and they, you know, seemed to have this perception that he was a long shot that they didn't need to worry about, uh, you know, which is their own fault. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that perception was shared by many people. Um, and, and, you know, then he, he outdid them all, and so that's, that's a problem, and you know, it was very depressing to see them just fold to him. Um, you know, I, I thought on a political level, like, okay, they're being strategic. They want to be, beat Clinton, whatever. But, you know, you look at people like Ted Cruz, where Trump insults his wife, you know, insults his father, says his father's a murderer. You're like, how the hell do you get behind a guy who does something like that? Like, these guys have no spine. They've got no sense of honor. You know, they've got no dignity. Uh, and they've just given everything up to Trump. You know, they're a shell of what they were as people in their shell of what they were as a party or, you know, actually they become more of a monstrosity in that mm-hmm. effect. But, you know, they're Trump's party now. He he and his little uh, team of advisors of sadistic morons, you know, guides that party. Yeah, and even the supposed heroes that we're all supposed to look to for hope in the Republican Party are, you know, on every level that matters, still going along with everything he says and does. And, you know, like Ben Sass and Jeff Flake and wring their hands yeah. all they want to about uh, Doug Jones and, and Roy Moore, but guess what? At the end of the day, you're still voting for that tax bill, so it doesn't exactly. really matter. <laughs> and they were the same way um, during the confirmation hearings. Mm-hmm. You know, we could have avoided having people like Rex Tillerson be the Secretary of State. You know, mm-hmm. he was not qualified, and McCain and Rubio and others spoke out quite forcefully, you know, about his lack of qualifications and his ties with Russia at those hearings, and then they cast their vote, and they do the exact same thing on every policy. You know, I guess with with the exception of, um, you know, Obamacare with McCain, but then, of course, he went and voted for the tax bill, so who cares? And, you know, you have to stop. Stop looking for heroes in general, but certainly... I'm in the Republican Party because well, yeah. that's going to be disappointed. I mean, even quote unquote Maverick John McCain, who just can't get enough of that good old regular order, just you know he's okay with this bill that they're apparently finding out now that it it actually like increases taxes for some businesses, and now they're mad because they wrote it so sloppily, and yeah. they were handwriting notes in it like at 11:45, and I remember things I did in college like that, and I I didn't get a very good grade on those. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, it's the economy that's going to get an F. And, you know, I honestly wonder if this is a purposeful effort to crash the economy because Mm -hmm. Trump and Bannon and other people who advise him have explicitly said that that's their goal. And that's how Trump and, you know, other kind of disaster capitalists that are in the administration have functioned in their private businesses their whole life. You know, they wait until things are in foreclosure. They wait for recessions and depressions, and then they make their move, and then they, you know, they buy up property and take advantage of people when they're at their most desperate and vulnerable. And so I think that's the condition that Trump wants to pull the country in. And we're already in a bad state. I mean, honestly, you know, I feel like we were before the election, and that's part of how Trump got into office in the first place. But I think he wants to pull us from a kind of, you know, a recession that didn't quite end uh, for certain regions, like where we live, uh, to an outright depression. Uh, and that's what I'm worried about for 2018, among other things. <laughs> 
<laughs> so much to worry about. But um, yeah, I mean, we may as well get into a little bit with uh, the Roy Moore thing because uh, this has just been uh, a pretty momentous day that we're talking on now, and probably by the time people hear this, will even be more news, I'm sure, on the front with uh, you know Al Franken, for example. Sounds like he's going to resign tomorrow. Now, um, yeah. John Conyers uh, announced his retirement what yesterday. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is this is a big moment for the Democrats, and you know, what do you think about all that? Do you think we like, for example, do we have to retroactively disavow Bill Clinton, and can he is he out of the club or whatever? I mean, I'm, I'm not that concerned about Bill Clinton at the moment sure. because he's not in office. Like, I'm worried about the people who are in office, and I do think that Franken should resign, and mm-hmm. I think it's good that Conyers should resign, and I think that this is just a very basic moral inquiry. Like, you know, can he effectively serve as a senator? Can he represent female constituents? Will women feel safe and comfortable working around him? Um, you know, we now have eight reported incidents, incidences uh, for Al Franken, and I take that seriously. And, you know, of course, I also think that Roy Moore should be prosecuted. I mean, I think he should be behind bars. I think Trump should be out of office, obviously, and he should be. So it's not like this sort of thing where it's like, well, what about the Republicans? Because the answer to that is like, yeah, them too. And yes, of course they're worse. Of course what they've done, you know, those two, uh, Moore and Trump that I just named, is worse than what Franken did. But, you know, this is a general an, an atmosphere of hostility and threats towards women. Uh, you know, these are supposed to be public servants who represent everybody, including, you know, women. I personally wouldn't want, like, my friends or, you know, my daughter when she's older to be working for somebody like that. I just think it's, you know, we can afford to lose him. I mean, in a political sense, you know, of course, he will be replaced by a Democrat in a Democrat, you know, state. So there's not that much of a a risk. But I also just think there are so many people who've been locked out of the political process out of hesitation, you know, especially women. They don't want to get involved in this in in part because of this pervasive atmosphere of sexual harassment and sexual assault. And so all those women who could make contributions could, you know, theoretically step up um, and feel more comfortable doing so. And so, you know, I'm kind of like, I, I liked Franken, uh, you know, on the, at the hearings. Uh, I thought he was an okay senator, but I'm not really sad about this. I'm more just like, you know, you <laughs> have to think of a non-swear word. Um, you, you, you jerk. Can cur- you can curse her <laughs> if you need to. Feel I mean, free like, to you express know, yourself you, however you want. You, you <laughs> apple. Like, how dare you do this is really what I'm thinking. Like, I'm just, I'm angry. Yeah. Um, and so I'll be glad if he's, if he's gone and, you know, hopefully he's learned something from this experience mm. and won't repeat it and, you know, can do something else besides serving in the Senate. That's true. Although it is rather fortunate that he will be replaced probably by someone of his, you know, his stripe, you yeah. know, it won't be a, a situation where it would be losing ground, really. Um, although they will have to run uh, sooner in 2018, but right. 2018 may be more favorable anyway for them. Well, yeah, I'm really worried about 2018, and you mm-hmm. know, not really because of the the sexual harassment, sexual assault stuff. Although I expect to hear about a lot more cases in the weeks mm-hmm. to come, I'm worried about voter suppression. You know, and I've been talking about this now for. I mean, God, like a year, uh, because it's very typical of, a kind of an autocratic administration, which this is, to rewrite the rules once they get in office to make it impossible for them to be voted out, to make it legal. And they've been doing this through ID laws, through gerrymandering, through this voter fraud commission uh, that they've created, through not uh, doing anything to counter Russian hacking, whether it's the integrity of the voting machines themselves or these propaganda operations. You know, if anything, they're still partnering with Russia. And so I don't think that our elections are safe. And so I think that, you know, Trump is very unpopular. He's historically unpopular. I think if the Democrats, you know, if there were to be an election now um, and it was honest, I think the Democrats would would do pretty well. Uh, But I don't know if they'll have the opportunity to do that in 2018 if a lot of their constituents are unable to cast their vote Mm -hmm. uh, or those votes aren't counted properly. So, you know, I'm worried about that um, more than I am about the quality of candidates or things like that. Yeah, that's that's a real fear, and, and we've really done nothing to address any of the questions that have lingered from the last election. Yeah. Um, and we only did, you know, I remember I, I wrote a column about this at the time, but like when they did that Jill Stein recount thing, they only did it in three states, and one of the states I think was like Pennsylvania, they didn't even start. So, right, like, yeah, they refused 
to do it. Um, and, you know, that, that was at first a grassroots effort. Um, you know, I know because I helped promote it before Jill Stein popped up and said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll gonna, you know, throw some money in or get my supporters to throw money in. We were all kind of like, you know, <laughs> like, this is really who we wanted to be involved. But like, no one else was addressing this. Like, I remember just being shocked that the Democrats were just sitting back, um, because there had been so much in the media beforehand reported about Russian interference attacks. Like, this mm-hmm. wasn't some obscure issue. You know, we knew that they wanted to send poll monitors. We knew that the, mach- the machines had been tampered with. We knew about WikiLeaks. We knew about the hacks of the DNC. There were all sorts of indications, and I think that what Trump had you know, fairly cleverly done, I actually think this was Manafort's idea, uh, was to go on and on about how the thing was rigged, therefore prompting the Democrats to say, oh my God, of course, an election could never be rigged because they thought they were going to win it and they didn't want a contestation. But, you know, we basically, it was, it was compromise. I'm not sure I want to use the word rigged, but it certainly wasn't, you know, uh, it, it's something we need to look into very seriously and that they should have looked into right away. And here we are over a year later, uh, and they still haven't determined what happened. We at little piecemeal reports. Uh, the last one I read said that 39 states had their elections compromised, which is, you know, a really big deal. And I, it blows my mind that this is just off people's radar, um, that they're not digging deeper and holding hearings all the time. I mean, that's a, a sacred part of democracy, and it just seems like they're not taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't in Virginia the control of the whatever their house is or whatever, isn't it um, just hanging by like one seat, and it could have been because there were some provisional ballots that weren't counted correctly, and it was like just a couple hundred, and it would be probably the, a different outcome, but Yeah, just... there's Virginia and then there's Georgia, like the stuff mm-hmm. that's happened in Georgia with their server getting wiped. Yeah, so what was up with that? <laughs> their Republican Secretary of State, who's now running for governor, you know, was at least involved or approved somehow the wiping of the server that held, you know, the data to show whether or not their machines had been tampered with. And, you know, computer scientists that investigated this believed that they were. And then when they were trying to, you know, firmly assess that, suddenly all the information was gone. And so they can't ever find out. You know, that's, that's just missing. And that, to me, is a really big deal. And, you know, not to sound conspiratorial, um, but, you know, this is a fact that Sergei Kislyak was in Georgia at the university, uh, wow. which is a fairly obscure one. I can't really KSU or something like Kennesaw. I, I can't remember exactly because it's that obscure. Um, that held the machines. He was there visiting, and he has not visited basically any other American universities. But strangely, was there before the election, mm. and I find that extremely bizarre. I mean, it's at least worth sort of being like, well, what what would bring him to this part of America and to this particular place? And mm. you know, they do believe that Russia was behind the hacking of the machines, if there was one. So, is there a connection? Uh, you know, I, I wish people were looking into this. Like, I'm hoping that some branch of the government, you know, is looking into this and does have these answers, and that maybe they just haven't been communicated to the press yet. Because you know, I, I would like to know. I found out the Kislyak information from the alumni magazine of that university, and then it was just like, holy shit, like, this is bizarre, you know? Yeah, that's quite a coincidence if it is one, which it's probably yeah. not. But, um, so speaking of, you know, kind of influencing voters and, and maybe uh, swaying elections, uh, I don't, you know, we since the last time we talked, uh, Google, Facebook, and Twitter's, uh, not their CEOs, of course, but their lawyers, uh, went in front of Congress. Um, thought it was pretty telling that they didn't have, like, Jack from Twitter show up, because I have some questions right. for that guy, like, how do you sleep at night? But... Um, <laughs> Uh, I just don't think they're ready to own up to their role in subverting democracy. You know, like they did no, this. they're not. They're acting like they're afraid. Um, and I don't know whether it's out of outright complicity, maybe on you know due to some of their employees. I mean, these are fairly large companies, so mm-hmm. I, you know I think different people could have acted different ways, you know, without other people's knowledge, or they just don't want to take the initiative to you know try to solve what's a massive social and political problem that they. Ins- 
persist at looking at as a technological problem. You know, and that's been the issue all along. That's been the issue for like a decade. I mean, you see it in the demands that users make where they're talking about things like, you know, Nazis and harassment and death threats and, you know, things that affect people psychologically, things that, you know, reshape politics and then Twitter, you know, changes a heart to a star. Like, you know, it's just not, it's not responding to the things that people are actually worried about. Um, and those hearings, you know, I watched those and I felt like they were pretty weaselly. Uh, one of the most frustrating things, of course, is that, you know, we knew about this for the last three years. We at least knew that things were wrong. There were people impersonating other users. Like, you know, all the stuff comes out now about how Russia had created all of these, um, you know, black political organizations and, and black users. Like, those were, those people were outed, like, instantly. The minute they appeared and started spouting nonsense on Twitter, um, you know, by mostly black female Twitter users who just could spot a fake. You know, and they created a hashtag um, called Your Slip is Showing. The main person who did this was um, Shafika Hudson, along with a couple of other Twitter users. And that was all the way back in 2014. Uh, and it's like that effort just wasn't acknowledged. You know, people didn't really cover it in the media. And had people looked a little closer at, like, well, why was this happening? Who was behind this? You know, maybe some of this could have been avoided. Um, you know, I just think any kind of discussion that brings more transparency into these tactics is beneficial. But a lot of people just wanted to look the other way. Uh, and honestly, I think it's because they didn't care um, because the primary targets were women um, and non-white users of, of both genders. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, when political ads are being paid for in rubles, it's like, yeah. what do we think is going on here, really? I mean, <laughs> and honestly, that was one of Al Franken's big lines. Yeah, right. So. R.I.P. Oh, no. his critical <laughs> career, so pour one out. Yeah, I mean, that's weird. I don't know why they would even accept that. I mean, I certainly yeah. find it plausible that they would be tricked, um, you know, to accidentally running Russian propaganda. They have, you know, overloaded employees who aren't noticing everything that gets by. Like, I, I think that's possible. So when someone's paying you in rubles, maybe at least look at the content mm-hmm. and kind of be like, well, what is this? Why is this content here? Like, who is this aimed at? What are they trying to do? Like, mm-hmm. just ask some basic questions, and, and they failed in that respect. So. For sure. Now, uh, another thing that's that's happened on Twitter recently is Mike Chernovich. Uh, I don't even want to call him a journalist, but whatever he does for a living, um, he has been targeting people and... I know that you were on MSNBC a fair amount, and so was, until recently, Sam Cedar. Um, It feels like, you know, operating in bad faith is paying off for these people, and I feel like he's emboldened now because uh, they gave in on that. And I don't want you to have to speak for anyone else but yourself, of course, but how do you feel about that? Because that seems like very targeted, and like Sam Cedar's tweet, if anyone hasn't read it, it was making fun of Roman Polanski defenders, uh, but it was doing it in a subversive, crass way. Right, right. And and you would have to go out of your way to misinterpret what he was saying. Like, I read it, and I was like, I get what he's doing here, but like, somebody who was taking it so literally that they don't understand what he's doing, or or trying not to understand, rather, I should say. Um, But I, you know, I'm I'm nobody on Twitter, but I still delete my tweets every like, couple months. Like, I just mass, I just delete everything. I just, I kept back it all up and then it's all gone. I don't care. I don't need it anymore. Right. I don't need it out there. I've seen this happen too many times. You remember when Trevor Noah got the Daily Show and then those tweets came out that he had made like five years before and they were bad jokes and so he almost lost his job before he got his job and after that I was like, I'm out. I'm just I'm deleting everything yeah. all the time. I don't care. Facebook, Twitter, it's like all getting wiped every couple months. So, right. I mean, just I mean, say whatever you want to say but I think that's that's messed up that, you know, that happened because yeah. he didn't deserve No, that. I think it absolutely Absolutely is. And, you know, I wasn't really familiar with Sam Peters when he was fired, to be honest. But mm-hmm. I think it was, you know, it was wrong. Um, I think the tweet was very obviously, you know, mocking the people who were excusing Polanski, and that's not hard to discern. But the main thing I'm concerned about is that, um, you know, Mike Cernovich, who's, who's a rapist, a confessed mm-hmm. rapist, and who has written, you know, a shitload of disgusting tweets, like whether they're, you know, white supremacist or, you know, calling for physical attacks on people or justifying 
buying rape. Like, this is your source. This is the person you're calling on to make, yeah. like, a quality, sound judgment of what somebody else meant. You know, and of course, now that he's succeeded, uh, he's going after others. Um, you know, there's a concerted campaign right now between, uh, you know, his crowd, like this, you know, white supremacist alt-right crowd, uh, and a bunch of, you know, a certain branch of the Bernie Sanders supporters, and also, you know, conspiracy nutjob Louise Mensch and her backers. Well, I was going to ask you about her, too, but I didn't know if you wanted to say <laughs> that name or not. <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, they're all, they're all united in their aim uh, to get rid of Joy Reid, you know, the show I obviously appear on, but even if I did not, um, I would find this, you know, ridiculous. Like, mm-hmm. she's apologized for her blog post, you know, which was a, you know, a bad post. Charlie Crist has accepted her apology, but, you know, this is, it, it was amazing to me, because, you know, as you said, I was gone over the weekend, and it was right after the tax bill passed, and so I wasn't really on Twitter. And I come back on Twitter, and I expect to see, you know, a kind of unified progressive front against the tax bill, you know, which is a disaster. I just thought, well, this is going to be what people are talking about. And instead, it's all these people just trying to get Joy Reid fired, as if this was, like, the great cause of our time. This mm-hmm. is the great problem of our time. And it just, the priorities of these people just absolutely yeah. blow my mind. I don't think it's a coincidence that she's one of very few black female anchors on TV. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course they're going to use this strategy. You know, one other thing I worry about, given, you know, what WikiLeaks um, and also what people in the alt-right have done, is that they're going to fabricate, you know, tweets or oh, blog yeah. posts mm-hmm. or other types of information sure. uh, to try to, you know, to libel people. I mean, mm-hmm. I've had my own stuff taken out of context, but, you know, I've also had people say things like, you know, is it interesting that Sarah Kenzie quickly deleted her tweet about and then, like, some topic I never Ugh. tweeted about? And I'm like, wait a second, like, I what? never wrote anything. Oh. And I, I just kept, you know, I'm like, okay, offer proof, but it's pretty easy to doctor a tweet, so I'm kind of like... Yeah, I don't know what to do if, like, a situation like that arises, but I'm certain um, that it will, because if, if you can't provide it for them, they will fabricate it for you, mm. uh, and that's just, you know, very frightening. Like, I hope there's some kind of sound way of archiving all of our actual material so that we're able to tell, you know, if it's been altered, um, mm. you know, if things are real. I'm hoping people, you know, that have better grasp on computer technology than I do and social media uh, can step up and kind of inform all of us journalists of, like, how how do we do this? Like, mm-hmm. how do we, you know, prove and, ve- you know, verify sure. that our own work is our own? Because it's definitely going to come into question in the future. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Oh, it's just, it's so upsetting because, like you said, I mean, they're, they're just, like, looking for things to be, uh, quote-unquote, offended about so that they can hound you out because they're mad that Bill O'Reilly got hounded out. But he, you know, this is always the thing. They're never concerned about the actual thing. I, I, I guess guarantee yes. they weren't like actually offended by that tweet or whatever from Sam Cedar. They just were like, oh, but we can play this off as, like, they're not actually concerned about the content of it. They're just concerned about, well, what about is that classic Russian, you know, thing of whataboutism, you know? It's not about right. the thing. It's about, ooh, look over here. Look what you're doing. Let's not talk about this. Let's talk about this. So, I right. mean, it's... And it's, it's very frustrating. Yeah. It's this, you know, it's portraying women as pawns uh, in political battles. And that's also kind of leaking over into the conversations about Franken and, and Moore and others where it's just sort of like, ooh, is this a good move? Is this a win for the Democrats or a win for the Republicans? And like, you know, I know who's losing and it's women. Mm-hmm. And like, there's more to this than just like, you know, political maneuvering. Like, people actually got hurt in these situations and that needs to be prioritized. And, you know, and that's the way I feel about the Polanski case as well. Um, you know, although I do think that tweet was obviously, you know, poke, not exactly poking fun. I mean, it was like savaging the people who were defending him. And if you remember that time when, you know, you kind of went out on a limb if you were criticizing Roman Polanski at Mm -hmm. that time. Conventional you know, uh, commentary was was defending him. So mm-hmm. that was, you know, in my mind, he wrote a good tweet mm-hmm. and got fired unfairly for it. So sure, yeah. Um, so I mean, let's. I mean, you mentioned Louis Mensch, so let's let's talk about it. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's a fair amount of people I think who are are uh, alternatively say writing some fan fiction about uh, reality right now, and I think that there's a market for what they do, and that's probably why they're like gaining. You know, they've gained the popularity that they have. Um, um, but you know, what do you think? Uh, who, how, how, how can the casual Twitter user discern from you know? Because I, I, I obviously think that that you have a good head on your shoulders. But you know, when I see Louise Mensch talk about 
things. I'm just like, you, I, where, huh? Like, where are you getting this from? Like, and she, well, she was involved in Brexit, too, right? She's one of the people right, that, that exactly. is, like, responsible for that. So, I mean, why are we listening to anything she has to say in the first place? Yeah, I mean, speaking of deleted tweets, um, Louise Mensch deleted about 100,000 tweets mm. after Trump won. Um, you know, before, actually, after Trump won, she mm. proclaimed she was on the Trump train and eagerly welcoming mm. uh, the new administration. You know, she's a, a hard-right conservative. Um, she's a friend of Milo. She's friends with mm. people from Breitbart. Mm. Her, you know, sort of clique of people online includes friends of, of Seb Gorka, people who write mm. for, you know, Jared Kushner's newspaper. Like, this is someone who's who's connected to Trump and who wanted badly to play down those connections after he won. Um, I'm not exactly sure why. I think initially, you know, she at least was one of the very few people at the time who was saying, yes, you know, Russia influenced the election. This is something we should take seriously. And so people were like, oh, you know, who were interested in that were like, okay, you know, this is, I think people thought of her as, as similar to, say, you know, Evan McMullen or, or David Frum or other conservatives, you know, mm-hmm. who had embraced this as an important thing. But it quickly became clear um, that if this person, if Louise Mensch is not an actual disinfo agent, that she's just like that shit nuts. Because, you know, she was writing that Ferguson was a Russian plot oh, yes. and that Steve Bannon was going to be executed and Rince Priebus was hiding out and Saudi Arabia. I mean, and like every day it got more and more bizarre. And then what happened was a lot of journalists who were very gung-ho about saying that nothing had happened with Russia and Trump, mm-hmm. that there's no connection at all. And these are people from the left and people from the right started to use Louise as this exemplar of conversation about Trump and Russia, which she really wasn't. You know, most of us were not sort of all in this alternate dimension that she inhabits and, you know, we're grounding our our theories and our critiques in reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she was a very easy scapegoat, and I think she she put herself out there. I mean, Milo uh, in May proclaimed that this was a plan. You know that her her goal was to delegitimize. Um, you know, quote the resistance and also discussion of of Trump and Russia. Uh, in the last few months, has taken a nastier turn. Um, she's basically embraced Pizzagate style tactics in which she and her you know online backers um, invent really wild uh, conspiracy theories about people in the hopes of you know getting stalkers, getting physical you know. Carried out that kind of thing. Like for me, they said I run a drug cartel, oh. that I'm a KGB agent, Whoa, that I lead cool. two. I a KGB agent on the show. Far out. Oh, well, she's called. I think probably. I mean, there must be like a thousand people. She's called KGB. Oh, <laughs> oh that's right. Uh, you shouldn't feel very special. I guess that happens fairly often. I've been accused of overthrowing um, the Soviet government of Uzbekistan in 1988 when I was Whoa. nine years old. Nice so, work. Like, very ambitious. For fourth grade. Sure. Um, anyway, yeah, like there, the problem is, though, is that this has actually turned, you know, for many people into a problem of getting threatening phone calls, mm. getting, you know, stalkers at events, and that's what they want. They want to just sort of replicate the tactics of the alt-right, the kind of things that, you know, happened with Pizzagate, where they don't carry out an action, but they get some, you know, lunatic who's mm. reading this stuff on Twitter and taking it really seriously and becoming very emotionally invested, uh, you know, to, to carry out um, really bad behavior. And so, you know, that's frightening. Uh, I don't know why Twitter hasn't, you know, done anything about this. I mean, I kind of do know they don't do anything about anybody. But, um, yeah, it's not a good situation. No, but they'll give you 280 characters uh, that no one Oh, yeah, great. 280 more characters of death threats and conspiracy theories. Sure. <laughs> so, I'm sorry that happened. That sucks. Um, but, uh yeah. Yeah, but uh, people like Seth Abramson definitely don't need 280 characters because I can't read no. his tweets anymore because they're just oh, like God, no. short novels. It's like I'm I'm done. I can't. My eyes are crossing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's a little different. Like I don't think he's. No, I don't want to put him on the same me. pedestal, but I think he's um, like he's another but degree he's removed. So long-winded, and sure. I don't think he knows what he's talking about <laughs> a lot of the time. I think, but I mean, his main problem is he's putting things that are are guesses, and everyone's welcome to make a guess sure. and have a theory about this. It's not like there's monopoly on that but you know he puts them down as facts and a lot of Mm -hmm. the time it's like and Louise and her crew do this as well they say that something is going to happen usually that Trump is going to be removed from office or that various people have already been indicted it's just a matter of time until we find out and this the timing of this is always around when there's you know a bill that needs to be protested tax bill or DACA or health care. And so what happens is people read this stuff and they think, oh, you know, 
it's all taken care of. I don't need to call my representative. I don't need to be concerned. I don't think this really works anymore, you know, mm-hmm. because we're now in December and this has been going on for a while, so these tactics don't work. But, you know, unfortunately, I, I have seen that play out. Um, but, yeah, he certainly is not, you know, same caliber of that. <laughs> no, no, I don't. Yeah, I definitely don't want to put them on the same thing. But there, that's another person that, you know, I, I, I think I think that, yeah, like you said, he's a little long-winded and, like, he asserts things, I guess, as, as facts. I think uh, Eric Garland does a little bit of the same. Uh, he, he's just kind of gone off the rails. Yes. He had a whole conspiracy theory about James Comey's Twitter account, which really is James Comey's Twitter yeah, account. Yeah, because like, you know, uh, Ashley Feinberg uh, found it. Uh, right, uh, yeah. and we knew that. And mm-hmm. so instead, he, you know, and I thought it was like a parody at first, and I realized to my horror that he was serious. He was like taking little, you know, um, mm-hmm. Photoshop close-ups of it and saying, wow. like, look at the angle of the shadow. And then I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh my God, like, you've, you know, something's wrong here. And wow. so I just kind of, you know, tiptoed away. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, but uh, you write a fair amount of threads, uh, and I, I do find yours readable because you really don't go overboard. You don't abuse the 280-character limit um, like like uh, other people who do threads. Uh, so do you, uh, I've never really written a thread before, so do you, like, write them, like, beforehand and then, like, do them just meter them out one at a time, or do you write them on the fly? No. I mean, mine are really short. Like, no, if I yeah, exactly. Thread, it's then, like yeah. maybe six or seven tweets. It's not like something I sort of set out in advance. And something, mm-hmm. sometimes, I mean, except for things like if I'm live tweeting a hearing, like sure. then you might get yeah, like a massive sense. 30 point thread or something. Sure. And occasionally, um, if there's an issue that I just want to circle back on, like I kind of tracked the development of the North Korean, um, you know, nuclear conflict all the way back to March, I would just add on to that thread just so that the information is all in one place. And honestly, that's just as much for me as it is for other people because it's an article then it's like okay all the articles that I found interesting as re- are, are in one place so sure. you know um, that's basically just it and then if it's like a, a thread I mean if I have something I really want to say eloquently and thoughtfully to a massive audience I write an article mm-hmm. because that's just you know, I mean, that's my job. Sure. <laughs> I'm a journalist, and so yeah. I don't really see the need to write, like, a 20, 30-part um, thread. And there are people that are really good at that, mm-hmm. um, you know, not the ones we've discussed, but there are other people well, that are really well, good give, at that. Yes, so let, sorry, we, we, cool. we've mentioned so many other people. Let's let's mention some people. Who should we follow on Twitter? Who do you, who do you um, recommend? Well, someone who's good at, with the threads is um, Alexandra Aaron. I think that that's her mm-hmm. handle, like, all one word. Uh, and she's been writing about the Trump administration and, and also about Trump and Russia. Um, you know, I think uh, Leah McElrath, uh, you know, she occasionally pulls out, you know, some good threads, but just general political commentary. And she's good um, on what's happening in the Middle East, which is a, another terrifying subject that we haven't really ventured in, but mm-hmm. she has some expertise um, in that area. Uh, Linda Tirado is good. Um, Tadette Harry is good. I mean, there, there's a lot of, you know, really good people on Twitter, you know, who, who tweet in all sorts of different ways. It's not like, you know, everything on there is terrible, but um, there's just some people kind of sucking up a lot of the energy in a negative oh, yeah. way, so I'd rather, you know, concentrate on the good ones. But. Well, for sure. Um, so, you know, we, we, we touched a little bit, or you touched a little bit on the, uh, uh, you know, stuff that's happening in the Middle East right now, which is which is pretty scary. You know, I don't I don't think yeah. Jared's going to solve this one. I really don't. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think that was ever the plan, unfortunately. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. It's... I mean, Jared worries me because of Jared's previous relationship, you know, mm-hmm. with Netanyahu, who's a Kushner family friend. Like, he would stay at the Kushner's house when he was in America. He's known Jared since Jared was a child. And also, they have financial investments in the West Bank. And this is just, you know, a financial conflict that, in a normal administration, would have made the person, you know, unqualified for the for the position or would have been, you know, vetted very intensely. And then one method of vetting is the security clearance forms, which he lied on repeatedly about contacts not just with Russia, uh, but with Israel. And, you know, what's weird to me is that these ties that the Kushner family has, um, you know, this wasn't secret information. This was stuff that was reported in mainstream news outlets and goes all the way back, you know, a couple of decades because Charles Kushner is the one, you know, mm-hmm. who has these contacts. So it's not hard to find out. And it kind of, it makes me wonder why it was Congress, 
why are people so slow to kind of get Kushner out or indict him or mm-hmm. remove his clearance? I mean, I guess he doesn't have full clearance according to them, but I think he's dangerous. You know, I don't like that he went to Saudi Arabia, palled around with a bunch of princes, and then suddenly there's a coup. Like, that makes me a little apprehensive. And, you know, and of course, I think if your family friend is Netanyahu and you have a financial stake in West Bank settlements, it's very hard to be objective on that issue. So he's really the last person who should be involved in the Middle East uh, policies mm-hmm. in any way. Well, maybe Trump is the last person. <laughs> he doesn't know what the hell he's doing, and he's now probably going to cause a world war. But, yeah, Kushner's second. You know, like, it, it's yeah. sad. It's a very scary situation. Mm-hmm, for sure. Well, it's almost like, you know, I was always worried about, you know, he's going to wag the dog, you know, things are, the noose is tightening, and, and this is what's going to happen. He's, he's going to go crazy. But all he really has to do, that you didn't, that's proactive. He doesn't have to do that. All he has to do is destabilize things in subtle ways enough yeah. that they'll do all the work for him. He doesn't have to start a war. Somebody else will, you know, like, yeah, like that's all they have to do. Like with this thing with uh, Jerusalem today, that's right. And, and that's the thing. Like, I think sometimes people forget that things really weren't great before Trump came in because they mm-hmm. become so much exponentially worse. Like now we had neo-Nazi rallies and nuclear war threats. And so that's our new kind of mm-hmm. worries. Um, but, you know, we had the destabilization of Syria. Uh, you know, if you look at the Middle East, we had, you know, what happened in Gaza in 2014. We had a, a coup in Turkey, uh, you know, and Turkey turning into an authoritarian state. Like, this, this is already bad. So just as you said, Trump just needs to kind of give it a nudge. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is a really toxic nudge. I mean, to, to move the capital, uh, to declare Jerusalem the capital, you know, is one of those things that just historically everyone is like, yeah, we decided that last, like, after we've worked everything else out. And Trump just, you know, basically throws a rhetorical bomb shell mm-hmm. into this region, and it's, it's going to have real repercussions, um, you know, that are frightening, uh, and, and I think he knows it and doesn't care because of this disaster capitalist mentality where he likes chaos, he likes destruction, because then he can swoop in, and, you know, others who he's close to, and I think this would include people in Saudi Arabia, in Russia, in Israel, and all sorts of countries that want to take advantage of this situation, will we'll go in and make their moves, whether it's for territory, or for money, or, you know, alliances, or whatever it is they want, um, and, and he will... Let that happen. Like, diplomacy's gone. You know, the State Department's gutted. They don't have an interest in that kind of statecraft anymore. They haven't for a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I just think that Rex Tillerson has done a terrible, terrible job at the State Department. But the thing is, you know, lately... <clears throat> There's this concerted effort to, to, you know, nudge, you know, kick him out. So I'm, I'm, I almost don't want that to happen either. Like, that doesn't seem good because I know someone who is even worse probably will replace him. And same thing right. with Jeff Sessions. I find myself weirdly like, eh, okay, he's already recused himself from the Russia thing, so maybe if he just stays there, and then Rosenstein can not fire more, and we can just yeah. come in for the big win. Um, you know, but like, it's like, I don't think they're, they should not have those jobs, but man, there's other people who really, really shouldn't have those jobs. So, I don't yeah, know. I mean, it's a tough, I feel like with Sessions, honestly, I can't think of a worse person because he's worse <laughs> in so many respects. Like he's the worse worst. on domestic level because he's a civil rights opponent. Sure. He doesn't have any respect for the law. He's like a perjury addict and he's wrapped up in this rest faculty to, to conduct, you know, the affairs of the office. Like, he's basically Trump's bitch. Like, I, I'm sorry, I'm trying to think of a more grateful expression, <laughs> but that's, that's sort of, you know, where he's at. Um, you know, Tillerson is maybe a, a different case because, you know, I think he was put there to basically dismantle the State Department, but all he had to do in order to accomplish that was just not fill jobs. So, you know, we're in a conflict with North Korea. He just issues terse statements like, yeah, we're not going to do diplomacy with you anymore, and then doesn't give, for example, South Korea an an ambassador. There's no ambassador. No, free of just acting. He just let stuff kind of rot away. I and mean, then you really see the effort it took uh, for the State Department to run and how much work had to be done for that to happen. He's just not doing the work. But I think you're right that if you put in somebody who's more of an overt warmonger with an actual philosophy, like I don't think Tillerson has a philosophy. I think he has this sort of oil exec philosophy, which is like, huh, if we drop these sanctions, I can drill in the Arctic. Like, that would be cool for my friends. I mean, I think that's really as far as it goes for him, um, but there are other people who are more dangerous and who I do worry about, you know, having that kind of control and weaponizing the State Department instead of just 
you know, gutting it and not letting it function as a diplomatic entity. Yeah, definitely. Um, did you watch that Jerusalem announcement today with the press conference there? Yeah, and I saw the end. Did you uh, see you know, that? What was blurred. that? Was that dentures coming out? Well, was that yeah, slurring that's what his I words? Read. I mean, at first, like, I saw people saying he was having a stroke and then that he was on drugs. But then, I mean, honestly, I lean toward dentures, and I know that's not, like, the most exciting explanation. <laughs> that's but not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I mean, this is, like, you know, this is not what I wanted to do with my day. I did not want to, like, be looking into Trump's gums and his mouth and, like, looking for dentures. Unfortunately, somebody did make a close-up video of that, and I watched it, and I, like, want those, you know, 30 seconds of my life back. And it looked like, yeah, he's having some ventures yes. problem. So, uh, you know, I, I do think that he is in mental decline. Yes. Hello. Hey, uh, I think uh, Eric Prince and Blackwater heard uh, her secret uh, SS, uh, secret <laughs> SS uh, spy that. agency heard us talking this ill the of thing. the dear leader. <laughs> yeah, I, well, you know that or everyone is like so grossed out by Trump and his mouth and <laughs> his issues that like no one wanted to hear that conversation and it needed to be stopped. So I don't know, but <laughs> my sympathies to everyone tapping my phone. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so uh, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is uh, that New York Times story with the Nazi next door uh, piece. Um, so I was at a journalism conference uh, this weekend, the Hoosier State Press Association, and uh, kind of side side note, I uh, won award for best editorial writer, but one of the editorials that I submitted was endorsement of Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so oh, it was kind of no. bittersweet. Congratulations, though. That's nice. Oh, thanks. Yeah, at least we, we at least we won something, Hillary. Right. So. Yeah. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, it came up during this uh, uh, conference beforehand and, and it kind of came up and I, I think one of the things, you know, I've read the piece a couple times, uh, you know, I think one of the things that it didn't do is it didn't just come out and say Nazis are bad. Like it just never made that it made, made right. it clear where they stood on Nazis. They were just like, it almost seemed like a celebrity profile. Like, it's like some, like, he's in a diner, and what is he having to eat? Let's talk about that. Right. It's like, that's what you would do if you were doing, like, a Gwyneth Paltrow uh, profile or something. It's like, right. we're not starting from the place of, okay, the Nazis did this, and now this guy has these beliefs. Isn't You know, whatever we want to say about that, they didn't do that. So they just kind of assumed the audience would already know that. And another thing that happened that day is I got a call from Quinnipiac University, Quinnipiac Quinni, Quinni, University, however you say that, mm -hmm. the Quinni, poll. Quinnipiac. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and, and I got to be a part of that for the first time. I told them I was a journalist. Oh, they fine. said it was fine. Um, but one of the questions they asked is they said, and I actually went back and looked at it later, and it says, do you think the Republican tax plan will increase your taxes, reduce your taxes, or will it not have an impact either way? And I told them when they gave me a chance to comment that I didn't like that question because that's not up for me to decide. That's just true. Like, if my taxes will right. go up if this passes. There's reliable reasons for me to think that, and for you not to ask that, what would you think if? Well, don't ask me if. We know. Say you know this, and how do you feel about it if you want to ask a question about it? But right. the larger point I'm making by bringing those two things up is that I think there's things that we don't say, that we assume people know, that I think we're in such a dangerous time that we just need to say. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, we just need to make it clear. Nazis are bad. The Republican right. tax plan will will not save you money. It will cost you money, and it will give all the money to the rich. Like, and it's not, like, up for debate, and we can't leave it opaque. And I just I just think it's a larger thing that society needs to work on right now. Um, but anyway. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's certainly something journalism needs to work mm -hmm. on. And, you know, in the case of the New York Times, unfortunately, this is a pattern. Um, you know, I was re-upping threads that I wrote last year where I basically was just collecting all of the Nazi puff pieces that they were doing mm -hmm. in which they elevate um, certain Nazis like Richard Spencer or uh, Matthew Heimbach. You know, they, they write these us weekly style profiles over and over, you know, not just normalizing them, but glamorizing them and also just giving them a, a platform of prominence that's, you know, not just, it, it's unearned, um, you know, and it also, it creates situations like Charlottesville. It gives them, you know, a fan base and draws a crowd to them, you know, that leads to things like, you know, Heather Heyer's 
death. Like, I think that, the, you know, those sorts of profiles and that kind of publicity for them is complicit. And at the time, I wondered if it was an organized PR effort, because so many publications were writing basically the same article, you know, about Spencer um, and about some others, you know, over and over. And I was like, what the hell is this? I just figure he has a publicist and, you know, they're, they're doing something. But yeah, of course, it needs to be explicit. And the thing is, is there are people who research, you know, white supremacists and Nazis, and they do it in a responsible way, you know, because we do you need to know, you know, what are their goals and what are they, you know, going to accomplish or trying to accomplish in the future and who is drawn to them and how do people get drawn into this and, you know, all that. Those are important questions. It's not like you shouldn't write about it at all, but there are responsible ways mm-hmm. to do it and irresponsible ways. And the way the New York Times does it is incredibly irresponsible. Um, and even their own author admitted it. You know, he, he wrote another piece saying that he didn't really feel like he had answered any of the so then that leads to the question of, well, then why the hell did the New York Times run it in that form? Why didn't you at least, you know, try to improve it? Like, it, it was very strange. And, you know, things like the tax plan, um, you know, that's another thing where it's a little more complex because, of course, the Republicans were the ones who were being opaque about it, who were not telling us what was in it, and who, who themselves didn't even know what was in it. You know, they were discovering yeah. that at midnight. So it's hard for the media to get that information uh, to the public. But, you know, we had some ideas. And, you know, I mean, it's hard to tell because what I worry about, um, you know, I guess the most is that the outcry, you know, that's ensued on so many different issues um, hasn't always had an effect. You know, it, it did in the beginning of the year. You know, things like the Muslim ban, for example, you know, were struck down uh, by the judicial system, attracted mass protests. And then this week, you know, it, it passed again, you know, through the Supreme Court. And there really wasn't much outcry. And I think it's because people are, you know, exhausted. But unfortunately, I think they're starting to kind of accept, well, this is what the Trump administration does. This is the kind of thing, this is the kind of world we live in now. And once you start going down that road, uh, you know, all sorts of things can become acceptable. And so that's, you know, a real concern to me. You know, I'm worried about hate crimes. I'm worried about the acceleration of hate crimes into something more organized, um, into an organized persecution of Muslims, um, you know, among other things. And so, you know, therefore, it's very important that media coverage, you know, be responsible and not feed those flames because, you know, there are literally lives on the line here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, speaking of, uh, you know, hate crimes and, and, and racism and slavery, uh, you uh, were presenting at a slavery in the great political divide of the 1850s lesson for today, question mark, at Yale University from last month. And I really wanted to watch that because I saw that they had the videos online, but apparently the one you were on wasn't, uh, didn't have video. But uh, so I don't know what the lessons were. So so could you tell me a little bit what the lessons were for today? <laughs> yeah, I was a, we were the final panel. I think the video is just for the first day oh, okay. um, of the conference, and the second day they didn't do it. Uh, um, but yeah, we we were more of like a free form panel, kind of summing oh, okay. up um, things that had been talked about throughout the conference. Okay. And when I spoke, um, it actually there's a, an article I wrote about a year ago that I drew from heavily about um, Elijah Lovejoy, who is an abolitionist and journalist from St. Louis, um, and he fled St. Louis uh, to Alton, Illinois, across the river because you know he was writing anti slavery editorials, and he kept getting attacked by white mobs, and eventually those mobs crossed the river, uh, went in, got his printing press, threw it in the river, uh, set his printing, his you know publishing house on fire, and shot him to death. Uh, you know, and he died, and so his monument is there, and you know his his writing is very interesting um, as it pertains to these times. You know, we've already talked about how you know this is a Jacksonian kind of presidency, to honestly be generous about it, and you know this is a guy who writing in the 1830s. Um, you know, he ended up inspiring Abraham Lincoln and his brother Owen Lovejoy was somebody who also, um, you know, worked as an abolitionist and uh, inspired Lincoln because they're all living in Illinois. Um, you know, so I talked a bit about him, uh, about his ideas, but also about journalism and the role of a free press um, and how you have to, you know, stay true to your principles, you know, even in very dangerous times. And so that was kind of my contribution. Um, I was kind of the outlier there. Everyone 
someone else was a historian uh, that focused on, you know, basically the Civil War era or the pre-Civil War era um, from a university. <laughs> it was like the token, oh. you know, kind <laughs> of, um, you know, I have a PhD, but, you know, I work as a journalist. Sure. So I was like this novelty <laughs> there, but it was really good. Um, it was a really good conference. Like, I enjoyed seeing all those presentations. Like, I'm glad I'm not in academia, but I like to go back and, you know, get like a little taste of it every now and again. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I know from, from reading uh, your work and other people's uh, work that study this kind of thing, that one of the ways that autocrats uh, kind of win in the end is that they wear people down. Um, mm -hmm. And I know I feel worn down. Um, and I just feel like I've, you know, the presidency is supposed to age the president, not everyone else and I just feel like I'm just getting sucked dry here because like I'm just I'm just upset all the time like I can't stop being upset and I I think that's yeah. a healthy thing in a larger sense but in like the day-to-day -day sense it doesn't feel very healthy um, absolutely so what do you do I know you're <laughs> you know you, you think about more depressing stuff than, than you know most people so I mean you, what do you do to kind of uh, self-care to use a buzzword uh, I, guess. I mean I don't I don't know <laughs> it, it's been hard uh, I'm gonna say you know the last couple months have been the hardest uh, for me basically since he, he declared candidacy because there's just been so many things like basically once once the hurricane started you know I have yeah. friends in Puerto Rico and stuff and um, it, right. it's just been awful you know there's been things that have uh, bothered me on a personal level as well as on like a more abstract political level and you know I'm exhausted um, you know I've did 27 lectures and tried to fight this thing very hard. Um, you know, I don't necessarily feel like we're winning. Uh, I don't think that necessarily matters in terms of whether, you know, you you decide to fight. Like, you fight because, like, what the hell are you going to do? You know, mm -hmm. I'm also a parent. I'm also a citizen. Yeah, I don't want to live in an authoritarian country. I don't mm -hmm. want people to lose their civil rights. I don't want people to get hurt. So, you know, of course I'm going to fight this, uh, but of course it sucks. I mean, there's, you know, anyone I think who had a romantic idea of dissent uh, has hopefully abandoned it at this time and has new appreciation of what people have gone through. Um, you know, I think especially people of, you know, our generation uh, who never really had to live through anything quite this terrible. Um, mm -hmm you know, have a, a sense of how difficult it is on a daily basis. And, you know, unfortunately, one of the things, you know, I like to do to relax is go and visit, say, I don't know, a national park or a museum or all the other things that Trump wants to destroy. And so you know, that's now sort of, you know, tinged with that. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that, that those things remain, um, you know, I like... <laughs> it sounds so weird, but, you know, Missouri is, like, the number one state for caves, so yeah. I have this thing where I'm, like, trying to see all of them, and, you know, cool. that's, like, my, my strange little hobby, and it gets me out of the house, and the best thing is, in a cave, you don't have the internet. You can't get mm. Twitter, even if you want to, so it's, like, this break for me to just, like, hide out in one of these big caverns in Missouri, and so that's what I do. Um, I guess for self-care, I, I should be, like, getting a manicure or something, but no, <laughs> um, but, yeah, anyway, so hopefully they won't uh, shut the state parks down either, but yeah. we'll see. Sorry, my mind was just drifting to a place where Twitter didn't exist, and it was beautiful. Oh, it's so nice. <laughs> I mean, like, even if I wanted to get on Twitter, I can't. Oh, That's wow. why it's great. That's why I, like, I'm, like, I'm going to the cave, and I will not even know what's going on for, like, two hours, and it's going to be bliss. And so that's what I do, you know? It's my thing. That's a good, that's a good suggestion. Um, oh, yeah. Now, uh, you have a book that you've already written that came out in one form, and it's coming out in another. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, I should plug it. Um, it's coming do. out in April uh, in paperback for the first time from Macmillan Publishing. Uh, there's a couple of additional essays in it about the Trump administration and, you know, how to function under it, um, but it's mostly a collection of essays I wrote between 2012 and 2014 about, you know, the decline of the U.S. and, you know, basically the world after the recession and in the austerity age. So I talk about the economy, I talk about education, uh, race relations, international affairs, like a real, you know, a real mix of things. Um, but a lot of people kind of embraced this book after the election because they felt that it explained a lot of the political conditions that made Trump's rise possible and also to some degree Sanders' rise possible um, in terms of, you know, economic stuff, that the recession, you know, didn't end and that people really were, you know, doing poorly. Um, so, yeah, uh, go out and uh, get the book. I'm sure I'll be <laughs> promoting it, you know, when spring rolls around, assuming we're not uh, distracted by, you know, world wars or something yes. else. I mean, it's the 
thing is like, you know, they told me it's coming out in April and I'm thinking, what the hell is the world going to look like in April? Like, am I going to care that I have to see that? That's, you know, I shouldn't be saying that on the podcast. <laughs> but yeah, um, so pre-order it, therefore. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> well, while we're still alive, go ahead and pre-order the damn book and, uh, you know, it'll be delivered to the, yes. the ashes that were your home yeah. uh, come April. So there you go. <laughs> you, look, you, you may be a shadow on the sidewalk when it arrives, but you really should yeah. order it now. But, you know, <laughs> go for it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, it's called The View from Flyover Country. I don't think we mentioned yes, the title. Yes, I should say the title, from Flyover <laughs> yes. Country. And yeah. it is available from multiple, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, yeah. all sorts of places for pre-order at this right. point. So. D- definitely. Well, is there anything else we didn't talk about? Uh, no, I think that was like, dude, this is the thing. It's like the third time I've been on. I think this uh-huh. is like the most horrifying yeah. interview. Like, I think the topics were, were like accidentally worse. And like that the next time worse. I'm on, we're going to be like discussing like the shape of the mushroom cloud we saw the other. I mean, just, you know, really hoping there's like an upswing at some point. But I know I'm, look, we'll I'm looking. I'm looking for it. Well, I'm going to keep reading your stuff. Thank you so much for coming back. Oh uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, you have a great night. I'll talk to you soon. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast everywhere it's available, which includes iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. It really helps. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Until next time.